to again ask your blessing on the Word of God. But Father, there are hearts here that are hurting, hearts that need to hear your voice and to hear your comforting words, to know who you are in the midst of very difficult storms. I ask you, Father, to show yourself strong. Give them your glory. Help them to have faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we were uh, talking about the goodness of God. We went back and we defined it in the Old Testament. I took you to a theological reference and lexicon called the Theological Wordbook of the Old Testament. And we're just sort of walking through some of those definitions. In our, in our current segment, we talked about the goodness of God when he was uh, creating the quality of goodness, this idea of making it uh, uh, of the highest level of goodness possible. And he noticed that in his creative order, there was one more thing he could do, and he did it in the human relationship. That should tell you something that God values relationship between human beings. He values relationship between husband and wife and wife and husband. Why would He do that? Because there is a triune God, a God of Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There are three individuals, one essence, and yet within that harmony, that trinity, there is harmony that is consistent with unity, camaraderie, love, satisfaction. And he takes what happens in the Trinity and he gives it to two human beings so they can enjoy what God already is. So that's what he was making good. Tells us in the marital realm, the goal of our fellowship one with another, with our husband and wife and wife and husband, should be on the level, on the par, should have the standard that's set of the unity and harmony that's within the Godhead. It's a high calling. It's a high order. Now, when we look at uh, God's goodness in the Old Testament, there's a character to it. It's, it's sort of what He is on a regular basis. Now, this will come to you in Exodus chapter 33. You might want to turn to this one. Exodus chapter 33, and we'll pick up the narrative in verse 19. Moses had just gone through an ordeal. The ordeal was the blackest of unfaithfulness. He was up on the mountain, and he had spent nearly 40 days or thereabouts on the mountain. And yet, while he was up there for that month and a third, the people in the valley, that is, the Israelites who came out of Egypt, started to long for Egypt again. And they didn't long for him in food or drink or bread or garlics or or leeks. They longed for the gods that Egypt had. Remember, 400 years in that foreign country, they kind of picked up a liking to a few of those gods. And Egyptians at Egyptian time had gods for everything. It's thought and well documented that many of the plagues, if not all of them, were aimed at thwarting Egyptian deities. So they had that sort of affinity in their hearts. So while Moses is up on the mountain, that affinity, that desire for other gods comes to the surface, and they say to Aaron, hey, Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. No faith. So why don't you, like, make us a god? And I can't believe it. Aaron did this. But everybody, he tells them, bring your jewels, bring your gold. He fashions it into probably some type of calf. Now, it is thought that he wasn't denying Yahweh He was depicting Yahweh in a tangible, visible calf form, bull. 
as if to say, this is your God that brought you out. This is the Yahweh that you're longing for. They wanted to see a figurine like they saw in Egypt. God is very clear in those Ten Commandments. Don't make anything like that. I don't want you to carve anything like that. I don't want you to forge anything like that. I am the invisible God whose word is powerful enough to demonstrate his authority and power. That's what happened. So Moses, he goes and he appeals. He's a, he's a brilliant man. He appeals to God, says, now listen, if you have to blot somebody out of your book, blot me. Blot me. Does that not sound like somebody you know? It sounds like the Lord Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's just like the Savior. The interaction between Moses and God at that level is some of the highest discussion we can ever glean from. And we can see how Moses interceded, how God responded. And Moses comes to a point on this very endearing moment where Moses says, I would like to see your glory. Verse 18, please show me your glory. The Lord says, verse 19, I will make all my, look at the word, goodness pass before you. In other words, he uses this word goodness almost as an adjective, and he's saying everything that would encompass God could be described in the word good, and I'll make it go all before you like it was a a ticker tape parade on New Year's Day. You'll see it all. But you can't see my full glory. Oh, was that my phone? <laughs> so it's, but he said, you can't see all my glory and all of its capacity. No man can see that and live. So I'll stick you in the cleft of the rock. I'll go past you. You'll see the back of me. Very uh, 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 um, anthropomorphic. Oh, boy. We'll just kind of turn you off. So sorry. And so Moses, uh, the Lord says, I'll go by you. Anthropomorphic terminology. And you'll see my back and, and, and you'll see that element of my glory, the tail end. Notice what it says in the verse. My goodness will pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will... Be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You know what? You know that verse is interesting. It it sounds as if God is limiting who He's going to be nice to. Did you know that in the book of Romans it says, "I have brought everyone under the conviction of the law, so that I might have mercy on all." It's not because it's not because God's picking and choosing. It's because God wants everyone to be indicted so that He can give mercy to everyone. You know what we call that? Goodness! That's just old-fashioned, pure, unadulterated goodness. And I am a recipient of that goodness when Christ died on the cross for my sins and rose again. That's the goodness of God. It doesn't get any better than that. It's goodness. Now, turn over to... The chapter 34, a chapter later, it comes to the moment when it's time to show Moses his, his presence. Verse 6, and, Moses, and the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, that's Jehovah, the Lord God, Elohim, merciful and gracious, long-suffering. This is totally different than the neo-atheist, isn't it? Abounding in goodness 
The word goodness there, actually in this case, has the concept of, of hesed, that God is so about keeping His covenant of mercy, He will be loyal to you to the end with His love. That's His goodness. Loyal to you to the end. Have you ever had somebody betray you? Oh, that's a knife in the heart. It goes through, the, through to the back, right? Someone betrays you. You thought I was your, I thought I was your friend. The psalmist writes about that. I, I, I dwelt with one I thought was my familiar friend. We ate together. We drank together. We, we, we had fellowship together. We talked. We laughed. We joked. We went to the ball game together. That's a loose translation that's in the Hebrew. You can't see it all the time. And, and yet, when that betrayal happened, all of that camaraderie, friendship, is like a lie. Oh, that hurts so bad. It's awful. God is saying, I am totally not that. I am committed in my love for you. It will never, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. You can trust me on that one. I am the faithful and true witness. That's what he said. So are you at that point in your life where you feel like this love and this loyal love of God, His goodness and expression of His goodness is maybe growing thin for you? I want to remind you what God says about Himself. I want to remind you that the loyalty of God's love is not in jeopardy. It's not waxing and waning. And it will never, ever diminish The passion of his heart for you, the jealousy he has for you, will never diminish. It will always be full on, all the time, every time. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Or you could say it this way, God is loyally loving all the time, and all the time, God is loyally loving. Oh, let that wrap its arms around your soul, my friend. For I I think... But many of us are on the edge of the cup, aren't we? They're on the precipice of doubt. We're on the cliff of despair. And we need to know our God. We need to hear because right now, all those complaints and all those voices and all this rationale that puts God in a wrong position is so heavy upon our hearts. No, I refuse to believe that because the word of God is exactly the opposite of the lie of Satan. So I call upon us today to reinvest ourselves in the very words of God, not because we're holding to some ancient document as if it has magical powers. It's because that document was authored by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he's trustworthy. That's what I want you to see. That's what he was showing Moses, his loyal love. I love all the things that he says. I I, I tried to put them behind me on the board. Uh, Merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding. Notice that word, abounding in goodness. Only time it's associated. And truth, keeping mercy for thousands. Oh, listen, beloved, this God of yours, there is no other God like him. There is absolutely no. This is how he describes himself. Now, what about the New Testament? Don't you love that graphic here? I'll do it again. That's so cool. All right. Luke 18. Let's go to Luke 18. All right. Now my goal. Now, what time are we supposed to finish, my friend? 10 up? You're giving me till 10 up? Oh, praise the Lord. This is good. This is good. 
All right, Luke 18 and verse 18. Now, this story is about the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler came to the Lord Jesus, and he really said something quite interesting. He says, now, now I can just see him. Rabbi, I have a question. I've heard you teach. I've heard you preach. I've been in the synagogues. Uh, you know what? I have a, a, a laser mind for these things. I am an attorney. And I have a question for you. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You've got to admit, it's a very perceptive question. The guy is smart. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Why, why are you calling me good? This is the word in Greek. It's, there's, there's several words, but this is the one used for here. It's agathos. There's another word that's quite similar to it, kathos, right? But we'll look at agathos. Agathos means good in character. That's what he means. Good teacher. You're just not a good teacher because you can teach so well and we understand everything. You actually back it up with a life. That's what he means by good teacher. He says you, you, you love the audience that you're ministering to. You love the, the, the people that's hearing your words. You are the best of persons. You, 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 you fed the 5,000, and actually it was more like 40,000, maybe 50,000 that day, and the rumors were all over the place. And then if that wasn't enough, you, net, net, you fed another 4,000 in the Decapolis, and again, probably five times as much, maybe 30,000 people. You see, you're a good teacher, not just in your technique, not just in your style, not just in your parables, not just in your illustrations, but as an individual, you are a good teacher. You're virtuous. You're upright. You're respectable. And Jesus says, listen, you use that word good, but John, I need to understand something. Only one person is good. That's God. What is Jesus saying? I am God. If you're going to use that title for me, you need to understand that it's a really, really a title of God. So he doesn't rebuke him for the title. He's saying, if you're going to use that title, then you are actually understanding something very significant. I am deity in the flesh. That's what he didn't want to believe, that God was talking to him face to face. And then, of course, he goes on to describe the things that he should keep. And the lawyer says, well, I've done all those things from my youth. One thing you still lack, verse 22, sell all that you've had, See, uh, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Now, what was he saying? That you can work your way to heaven? No. He was identifying the, the tripwire in his life. The tripwire, the, the, the bugaboo, the, the issue of his life was not, not that he was keeping a lot of moral things of the Ten Commandments, but it's that he wanted things. He, he was covetousness. He was materialistic. And he says, you love that so much, you can't love me. So if you're going to actually come to God and see eternal life, you're going to have to get rid of that which you love more than me. And that's what's keeping you from eternal life. It's not an action. It's a disposition. And that's what you have to get away from now. Look at what happens next. But when he, the lawyer, heard this, he became sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became sorrowful, he said, you see that? The sorrow of this man touched the heart of the Savior. That's his goodness. Jesus is not out there just banging the, the gavel against the, the judgment seat of eternity. He's not banging it away. Well, you didn't do it this time. Whack! 
And he's got this great, gigantic heart that reaches out to the deficiencies of mankind. You know what we call that? We call that goodness. And I am personally recipient of that every day I take a breath. Now, we need to track this in the New Testament a little bit. All right, the goodness of God in the New Testament. This one, uh, uh, it, you should understand, it's, it, the goodness of God is theocentric. It focuses on God himself, which Jesus is saying he is. All right, those cross-references, Matthew 19, 17, says the same idea as Luke 18, 18. But look at 3 John. Look at 3 John. We don't go to 3 John very often, except when you're trying to have a short message. All right, I never have short messages, so... I don't go there very often, but listen to this. Beloved, for 3 John 11, sorry, I, I'm using my iPad so it's a little faster. 3 John 11? Okay, good. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but, but imitate what is good. Oh, okay, all right, I, I think I can do that. Why? Well, look at the next clause. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. That's very similar to the language he uses in 1 John about the word love. You know, you should love because if you don't love, if you don't love your brethren or your brother, it's very hard for you to say that you're of God because God is love. Very similar parallel idea. You should do good because God is good. And in fact, if you do evil, then one thing is for sure, you are not of the kind of spiritual DNA of God's goodness that he is. So you, you, you should understand this goodness of God is just who he is. It's his spiritual makeup, his DNA. Now, I'll go through some of these somewhat quickly. Uh, of course, Mark uh, ten seventeen talks about him being a good teacher. Hebrews 10.17 talks about the high priest of good things. You'll notice the word good is associated with so many features, facets, and functions of Jesus Christ himself. The high priest of good things. What does that mean, good things? High priest of how does that, How does that work? Well, let me see if I can explain it. Do you remember this day of atonement, Yom Kippur? It's Leviticus chapter 16. Now, on this day... You had uh, one day a year, it's in the fall actually, and the high priest would change his clothes. Normally he's got the ornate gold-laced embroidered stuff, and you could see him a mile away. Oh, hey, there's a high priest. He's got the thing on his head, you know, that kind of guy. But on this day, he puts on white linen, white linen. You would, he would blend in with the crowd, a normal guy. On this day... He would go into the Holy of Holies. So the tabernacle facing east would have the first compartment, which was the holy place, which had the table of showbread, you know, with the bread on it, and then the menorah, the seven-armed candelabra, and the altar of incense. And, uh, and, and the altar of incense was very important. Only the priests were allowed to burn incense. No one else. King Uriah, try, uh, King Uriah tried to do that. He was violently opposed by the priest, as he should have been, according to Numbers. Um, and then you had this curtain, and this curtain had embroidered on it cherubim. And on the other side of the curtain, you had the Ark of the Covenant with the angelic cherubim or cher cherubs facing each other, looking down on this solid piece of gold, which they were part of. So you think about what he's saying. He's saying, 
um, you come into this place and you can minister there, but to come into my presence, the cherubim stand like guardians of Buckingham Palace so that if you want to breach into there, you, without the right mechanism, you will be put to death. Remember, the cherubim held the sword that went back to the Garden of Eden. They were there for a purpose. They were guardians. And now they, in the presence of God, guarding the presence of God, looking down at this thing called the mercy seat, something unique, something amazing, something fantastic must happen. And on the day of Yom Kippur, you would take two goats and you would take one and you'd sacrifice it. Now, the priest, who, the high priest who was in the white linen did that work, did that surgical maneuver. What do you think happened to his white linen? And I was in Africa a few years back. They decided to have a feast for us. They went to sacrifice the goat. Well, I'd never seen that before, so I'm like this dumb American. I got my Nikon camera going. Yeah. One of the things I noticed is they just, this machete was this long, and they just, you know, the goat and the whole thing. Blood was everywhere. That guy who was involved in sacrificing that animal for our dinner was covered in blood from his fingertips, his chest, all the way over to the other side and down part of his legs. And I thought that's exactly what it would have been like for that high priest. Right? Now you're supposed to take that blood and you, you then, it's very symbolic, and you take it and you walk through the Holy of Holies and you go on the other side of the curtain. If you if you were the high priest for the first time and did this, wouldn't you just be scared to death? You go in, now you're supposed to put it on the Ark of the Covenant seven times. It says you, you sprinkle it on and before the Ark of the Covenant seven times. And there, when I see the blood, I will atone for your sin. Right? Atone means cover. That's very picturesque because you've got the Ark of the Covenant. You've got the solid piece of mercy seat, the solid gold that totally covered the, the opening to that crate and the cherubim looking. So what are they looking at? They're looking for the blood, okay? That's what they're looking for. And when that blood is there, the cherubim, who are guardians of the righteousness and justice of God, stand down. They stand down and let that seat become a seat of mercy. That's the goodness of God. And it's so important because in that ark, in that box, were three things which only typified uh, our rebellion. Uh, it's uh, the second law of the, of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. The first copy was broken. You can't even have the ink of, dry, of God's finger dry before we fracture the Word of God. The number two is, that, is the Aaron's broad that budded, and that was born out of rebellion because all these other dudes said, hey, we should actually be leading. God says, you bring a stick to the Ark of the Tabernacle, and the one that buds overnight, that's my man. God already knew the answer. Moses knew the answer. Aaron knew the answer. Everybody else was denying the answer. And so God made Aaron's rod bud. Now, it was in that crate, a darkened box. I don't think the buds failed. And then there's... The jar of manna. How did we get the jar of manna? Well, one day God rained down this thing, and it was like a little angel food on the ground, and we just picked it up and ate it. No. The way you got the manna is because the people said, God can't provide bread in the wilderness. That's like, we're just going to die here. If he just took us back to Egypt, we'd at least die with garlic. See, it was rebellious. And all those emblems of rebelliousness and sin were locked in the box, covered by mercy, 
appropriated to you and I when the substitute's blood was before God. You see the picture? The high priest of the New Testament, according to Hebrews, is very picturesque. He takes his blood that was shed on the cross, and he goes into the heaven of heaven, the holy, holy of holies of heaven. Very picturesque. He says this, and he sprinkles his blood there. And you get this idea that just as it was in the Old Testament with the tabernacle, so must the same ceremony once and for all happen in heaven so that my sins were hidden under this solid plate of gold with the cherubim standing ready to defend the breach, of unri- uh, the breach with unrighteousness. And instead, mercy is like a fountain that pours out from the holy of holies of heaven because the blood of a substitute was put right there. You know what we call that? The high priest bringing good things. He just cannot do bad things, can he? That is the prototypical demonstration of the goodness of God, isn't it? You see, I remind you of that because the goodness of God is all over the redemptive story. The goodness of God is all over the sanctification story. And the goodness of God is all over the resurrection story. Not only when we are raised from the dead when Christ comes back, but we will be raised to, unto His glory. It's all because of His goodness. The goodness of God uh, strikes everywhere. Time and time again. Now, here's some other scriptures that help seal the deal. Matthew 7, 11 talks about the good things that God gives good things. Let's read that real quick. Matthew 7, 11. That's a little, um, uh, comes at it from an opposite angle. If you then being evil know how to good gives, give good gifts to your children, how much fa- more your father in heaven will give good things. God gives good things. Never a bad Christmas present, okay? Never a bad birthday present. God gives good things. We find later in the similar prayer, similar, and remember this is the uh, uh, teaching on prayer on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, or Luke 11 talks about the same content. And in that content, he says, he will give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask you. Now let's be clear about this. The Holy Spirit in this dispensation is is given to a person the moment they trust Christ as Savior. That comes out of Romans 8. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not His. So if you are His, you have the Spirit of God. Well, when do you become His? When you believe on Christ as Savior. So it is apparent that you are baptized by the Holy Spirit in the Christ the moment that you are born again and He comes to indwell with you, indwell in you. So what is this Luke 11 passage talking about? It's talking, I believe, about what we call filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, filling today has some uh, uh, unusual uh, concepts to it. One of the concepts is that you have to have a second experience with the Spirit of God. I don't know, is that in the Bible somewhere? Not really. What it says is, is that they got together with all the persecution in the book of Acts and they prayed, and the Spirit of God filled them. And what did they do next? They went out and preached the gospel everywhere. What did they pray? That's important. They prayed that they would have boldness. So it appears that the filling of the Spirit of God, based on that example, is that when you ask, God will, in a unique, perhaps inexplicable manner, empower and strengthen His people to do what they've asked Him to help them do. 
Now that fits because when you go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he says, and do not be angry and give place to the devil, but be filled with the Spirit. Now it's this author, he's uh, Dwight Pentecost. If you're named Dwight Pentecost, there's a high chance you're going to be a Christian. You know what I'm saying? Right? I mean, I, 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 wouldn't you like that in Pentecost? My name is Pentecost. I was there. <laughs> anyway. Dwight Pentecost writes this book on the Holy Spirit. It's a really good book. And in one of his chapters, he talks about this Ephesians 5.18 thing. And he says, you know, Ephesus was a seaport town. And so they used the word filling when they would put the vessels out on the Mediterranean Sea and the wind would come across the Mediterranean Sea, the breeze, and it would catch the sail and it would be taut at the command of the wind and the direction of the captain. And he says, that's this idea that the sail of your soul is in, in, in filled with the energy and power of the Spirit of God, the wind, that the master captain of the vessel, Jesus, then positions in just such a way so that the vessel moves across the face of the earth. Very poetic, very picturesque, very accurate. And that's exactly what I think he's meaning when he says, now, when you ask, uh, will not the Father fill you with the Spirit? Do you know what I'm asking? I am praying daily that God would fill the assembly believer. Not that there's not other believers, but that's where I have been put. That we would be filled in such a way that revival is no longer a wish, but a reality. And I think we're starting to see it. I think we're starting to see it. And I've been praying for revival across all evangelical Christians. And what happens in Asbury College in Kentucky, I want it to happen at Emmaus Bible College and Tepsi and all of our conferences and all of our assemblies. There will be no non-combatants in the people of God. There will only be participants who have been filled, yielded to the Spirit. I don't know. It's just me, maybe. But I'm pretty sure the Lord agrees. All right. It says in Romans chapter three, verses seven through eight, that his glory is good. His glory is good. What in the world does that mean? I mean, think about it. We have notable athletes um, and, and, and they win and they go, oh, can I touch your stinky jersey? Right. You know, we have a commercial like that back at home. You know, I never watched Patrick Mahomes jersey and then the curl falls over. You know, that's our mundane, dumbed-down, stupid depiction of glory. But God's glory is different. God's glory is the kind of thing that you want. God's glory is the kind of thing that is overwhelming in its depiction. You see, God was glory uh, was glorified long before the worlds were made. Jesus said. Glorify me with the glory that I had before the world were made. There was a uniqueness within the Godhead that was just absolutely brilliant. Everything was perfect. Everything was right. Everything was balanced. Everything was in tremendous array. Why would you ever create a planet and give people a choice where they could choose to reject you and compromise your glory, which actually did happen? And the glory of God was stolen on this planet when Satan got mankind, the glory of God, to come to his side. So the redemptive story is Jesus Christ enters into the human race and does what should never have been done. He pays the cost 
to bring man back to himself in a legitimate, appropriate, jurisdictional way so that God's glory is now greater than pre-creation because he went to the expense of doing everything to satisfy the law so that we can legitimately, without cooking the books, without giving a bribe, be children of God. My friends, that's impressively glorious. You didn't do have to do any of that. You could have just wiped this out and you would have been legit. You would have been uh, a perfectly orderly and right. But you wouldn't do it that way. It's amazing. There was a surgeon once, and he's a good surgeon. We were in the operating room, and we're supposed to work on the lung, and we're working on the lung, and we cut the wrong thing. And it was not not a good thing we cut. He comes in. I'll never forget it. He goes, well, what's that there? Well, we uh, went ahead and took out the cancer. No, you just took out the whole lung. Surgeon, he goes like this. I'm just going to have to sew it back. Five hours later, he sews that lung back in place. All of us in the surgical suite, we we are like (laughs) bowing in the presence of the surgeon. That was glorious. Our God is so much glorious. And when we see him, we know everything is the way it should be. When we see him and see us recognize his glory, we will say, this is good. Now, I want you to think about this. Temple of the Old Testament, that was the one Solomon built. And it was beautiful structure. And the glory of God came down so that the priests could not do their job. That gets destroyed by... Um, by Nebuchadnezzar. They end up rebuilding the temple. Ezra's involved, Zerubbabel's involved, Nehemiah's involved. And after it's done, the men who could remember the temple 70 odd plus years ago cried. And they said, oh, it's not quite as ornate, beautiful, and brilliant as the temple Solomon built. The Lord says, Don't cry. I will put my glory in this place so that it will be more brilliant than the other place. Do you know what we're called today? The temple of God. Now, we're not replacing Israel. No, no, no. We're a new entity. But the same terminology has imagery to the Old Testament. And what he's saying is, I can put my glory in the temple today so that it will be more glorious, not just than Zerubbabel's temple, and not more glorious than, not just more glorious than Solomon's temple, but it can be the most glorious temple of all creation because my glory will more than abundantly fill you. That's what I want. I would call that the definition of revival. I would call that goodness. Because look at what it says. It says the glory, his glory is good. His will is good. Romans 12, one and two, uh, 12 verses 1 and 2. That you may prove that the will of God is good, perfect, and acceptable. That the will of God is good. When my little girl was in the hospital having appendicitis and all the complications, she would say, Daddy, 
I wouldn't do this to my little girl. Why would God do this to me? I'm a little girl. That's a moment when you go and you cry in the bathroom because you don't have an answer. And I ask God the same question. Man, I'm impressed at her little faith. She believed God. It's hard to believe that God's will is good at that point, isn't it? The only way you get there is the previous part of the verse of Romans 12, or 12 1 and 2. I, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves a living sacrifice. Your bodies a living sacrifice. Totally getting off the throne. That's the only way you're going to see the goodness of God. When the neo-atheists claim God's will is a farce, it's because they haven't submitted to God in totality. Of course they're going to be biased. Of course they're going to come to the wrong conclusion. It is only the Christian, the Christian who is surrendered in full to God, in which you will see the goodness of God. In which you see His will is acceptable. It's the only thing you'd want anyway. And it's perfect. It absolutely brings things to completion and maturity. That's the only way you get there. Make no mistake. If you're rebelling, resisting, stubborn against God, you won't see His good, acceptable, and perfect will. You will see your own sorrow. You will see your own heartache. You will see your own despair. But you won't see the perfections of the will of God. It takes, it demands absolute surrender i go on i could go on but let's not god works all things together for good well that makes sense he's good why would what else would he do in that text it says this i have predetermined or excuse me it says and god will make all things work together for good to them that love god and are called according to his purpose for god has predetermined that we will be made into the image of his son. Did you know in the Old Testament, let's just talk about this for a minute. In the Old Testament, it says we are made in the image of God, right? Remember that? Image and likeness of God is two Hebrew words, and both of them have unique uh, facets to them. But what happened when sin entered? Who were we the image of then? Multiple choice answer, ready? You're the image of yourself, image of Satan, or A and B. A and B is right, okay? Just in case you're wondering, all right? But mostly, we were the image of our father, Satan. How do you know that? Well, Jesus, remember when he was talking to the Pharisees? This is quite a, quite a big event of witnessing. He says, well, you're like your father, the devil. Can you imagine saying that to a Pharisee? You're basically Satan's kid, okay? Have a nice day. They were stinking mad. I just said that. We know who our fathers were not illegitimate like some people I know. That's what I was going down. Jesus said, you're like your father, the devil. See, that's what happened. We were the image of God, and we shifted over to be in the image of Satan. And then we made people in our image, which was like the image of Satan. And so what happened is the image of God was corrupted. We were supposed to be a, a replication, a duplication, a reflection of the glory of God. So doesn't it make sense that when he saves us and positions us, he makes a, a predetermined decision that we would return to be in the image of Jesus Christ, oh, who, by the way, would be the glory of God? Doesn't it make sense? That's exactly what he's doing with you. He is shaping and fashioning you 
to be an image bearer of God's glory because we sacrificed that at the fall. I don't know what you think, but I'm thinking he's pretty smart. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking he's brilliant. I'm thinking that you are so good that you would do what we threw away and stomped into the ground. I'm thinking your goodness reigns. All right. Got three minutes. I'm stealing it all. Okay. Here we go. Philippians 1.6. He begins and finishes his good work. And you all read that one for us because that one is a very important one. I'm just taking a survey through the New Testament. We're talking about goodness. We talked about goodness in the Old Testament. Our last hour, we'll talk about the examples. But listen to this. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, agathos, a good work in you, he'll complete it. God does not let his good work go unfinished. Do you feel unfinished? Do you feel like you're in the middle? Do you feel like you've got a long way to go? I've got great news for you. God finishes what he starts. So if you feel like you've got a long way to go, don't forget God is with you right there. He is there, and he's got goodness going for you and him. God's wisdom, uh, uh, James 3.17, God's the wisdom that is from above is first good, peaceable. What God brings to the human mind, what God brings to the understanding of our circumstances and situations, it's a good thing. It's never an evil thing. It's never a compromised thing. And look at this. God would prune to give more good fruit. He says, you know, a, a briar bush doesn't bring forth good fruit. According to James, he prunes us that we, or John, excuse me, John 15, he prunes that we might have more fruit. That fruit's good fruit. God is about bringing goodness at every single facet of our existence. All right, I have to do this last one, and this will be it. I want you to think about, so we talked, I talked to you about the Old Testament. I talked to you about the New Testament. I talked to you about uh, the character of God's goodness. I've talked to you about um, the, the concept of the facets in the New Testament about it. Now I want you to think about the, the Trinity, the Godhead, all right? And these I'll just summarize because I'll lose my time. Here's what I want you to think about. Is God omniscient? What does omniscient mean? I know all, know all things, kind of like mom and dad. Kids, where are the kids? Just mom. Oh, excuse me. Just mom. Mom. Just mom. What am I thinking? Amen. <laughs> I so love coming to this assembly. All right. So God's omniscient, right? All right. God's omnipotent. What's that mean? All powerful. And God's omniscient, God's omnipotent, and God's omnipresent, right? All, all places, all times. Those are words coined that we see as descriptors of those concepts in the scripture. The next few slides would prove that to you, but we don't have time to do those slides, okay? Now, you have to understand about the character of God. It's not like he's this over here, and he's this over here, and he's this over here. And, you know, we can bounce between those things. All those facets of God, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, goodness, justice, love, mercy, they're all poured into the same vat and mixed together so that all of them are present all the time and within equal distance of each other. So you can't just be good without bumping into his omniscience or his all power or his eternity. 
And what that means is, is because of those other facets of his character, his goodness is affected by his all-knowing. So there's ever not a problem with him not knowing the right good thing to do. And his goodness is affected by his eternality. He never turns off his goodness. And his goodness is affected by his omnipotence. He uses all of his power to give good things and good situations and wholesome outcomes. And God uses all, what did I miss? Omnipotence, omniscience, all his presence. If he's eternally present, he will bring with him his goodness at every moment of time. You see, this is how we have to think about God. Why? Because you said so? No, because it's actually in the book. That's why. And so God does not fail in goodness. He takes all of his character and it affects his goodness and his goodness affects all of his character. And That's the God you have. He's not some ogre, not some sort of uh, person who is having troubles with Alzheimer's. He's not the guy that sits on the corner and tells the kids to get off the grass. He's not some sort of self-centered person of ancient of days. He is good in every dimension possible. And he uses everything about himself to express that goodness, and that goodness affects everything about him. That's your God. That's the God you love. That's the Jesus who walked on the planet. That's the same Savior that would stop by the man who was full of leprosy, reach down and touch him, saying no words, but speaking with his hands and whispering in the man's ear, I'm so willing. If you're willing, Lord, you can make me clean. (laughs) Jesus, I'm so willing. Goodness. Boy, that would have shocked me that way. Don't touch him, no. Jesus pulls the sinner to his ear and whispers into his soul. He did that to me. He's done that for you. All right, let's close and we'll pray and come back. Father, 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 there's uh, lots of things to say, but really the most important thing is what you have to say. So take all this like clumsy word business And let the people of God hear your voice and no one else's. In Jesus' name, amen.